Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. So this morning's reading is from the 22nd and final chapter of Revelation. I thought that might get a bit of a whoop. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the begin, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. 
outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add that person to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. like that I'm not sure you need a sermon do you <laughs> much has been promised I am indeed the reverend doctor fear not um, my doctorate is in theology I am only a one-trick pony but even I know that an app is a software program that's designed to perform a specific function directly for the user or in some cases for another application program Johnny <laughs> <laughs> good morning welcome <laughs> Wonderful to see you at Trinity this morning. I'm Mark. I'm part of the team here. And um, I feel like it's like an interesting week to hear these words from Scripture. I don't know how you've found this week. I found it initially surreal, living in Hucknall as I do, far enough away from the city centre that I saw no traffic disturbance on Tuesday morning. But then heavy when it was my chief constable in Nottingham. I think the last time... Uh, I saw a chief constable of Nottingham on BBC. It was in Sherwood. But there's been this like, sense of anxiety in the air. And one of the things that I've found shocking is how quickly the press conversation moves on when it starts to seem like the story is more horror than terror. At the same time, I've found it jarring to have Steve, who will preach to you next week, in our midst, reminding me that in America, it's guns and children's schools. And yet, here we are, and you've made it all the way through Revelation to this vision of how it all ends in goodness. After 18 long weeks, after nearly six whole months of Sundays, we started in January, in case you can't remember. And the whole way through, you've been promised that this strange set of images has something significant to say to our broken world, which surely 
in this of all weeks begs the question, what does Revelation 22 have to say to a city in which a major incident occurred this week? Well, as I've looked at this stuff from Revelation, it's actually reminded me of a time in my childhood, a particular sensation from my childhood. When I was younger, I got really into panini stickers for a number of years. Some people are nodding in recognition. Some people are looking at the mega pack on the screens. These are, these are for the uninitiated, they're little stickers with football players on them that you spend all your pocket money collecting in order to try to fill your album or you just go and buy the album from the years that you remember now that you're old on eBay, having already been completed. I found that that's a thing this week. Um, but along the way, what you do is you, you keep buying packs and packs and packs and packs of stickers, and you end up with this enormous pile of swaps, because whenever you get a pack, you go through going, got, 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 need, need, I need this one. This, this goes in my book. Um, Got, 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 need, got, got, need. Um, I remember that very vividly. And you have this swaps pile, and you trade and buy and buy and trade. And unless you're willing to spend around £775, according to Professor Paul Harper in 2018, your album remains uncomplete. <laughs> I never completed an album. But my parents, they saw this new obsession, and they decided to use it to motivate me. In their defense, I would later defend my choice to play video games instead of revising for my A-levels on the basis that I needed to go in relaxed. So, might have been in need of motivation. Um, this was earlier than that, but the promise was that if I succeeded in whatever test it was, I think it was just like a mega spellings test or something, um, then I'd get two packs of stickers and the album. <laughs> I feel like you're really into this story now. The motivation worked. I did my bit. I succeeded in whatever the test was. I can't even remember. I don't know what it was that I learned. I'm sure I learned it, but it was exciting. I did my bit. And I can remember, I can remember vividly saying these words to a friend at school, that my stickers and my album were as good as on the table at home. Such was my trust. Alas, friends, they were not. My parents hadn't had time to get the stickers, and as a parent, I would now defend that. <laughs> we had to wait for the weekend, but I remember this sensation of disappointment. I remember feeling naive that my simple trust had led me to believe that they were as good as on the table at home, and then I had not just believed that, I had told someone else that, and now I wasn't going to be able to swap things with them. I remember longing for the day when they were on the table at home. It's a silly story, but I've been feeling that sense of a dissonant, disorienting gap between promise and fulfillment again this week as I've been thinking about Revelation and reading the news. Because it raises a similar question. Am I just naive to hope that this new creation stuff is real? Is it just an insubstantial hope that someone wrote down in the first century, and it's been taking people in ever since because the imagery was so weird that we figured it must mean something and we'd feel really clever if we could figure it out. But so much more importantly than, than even those questions, what do I do with this longing for the day when all things are made new? Because I see that in everybody, Christian or not. 
how do I actually face the brokenness that confronts me when what I want is to see Jesus? Can I actually trust God? Maybe that's the question at the bottom of it for me. Because there is no doubt that the promises at the end of Revelation are astonishing, aren't they? As Lauren told us two weeks ago, there'll be no chaos, no distance from God, no pain, and everything's going to be renewed. Now that I'm no longer in my 20s, I'm very excited about that. As Johnny said last week, it's the very presence of God which is going to be the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture. And this continues into chapter 22. Look at the first seven verses of our reading today. You'll see the first five in very small print. It stacks up imagery of joyous fulfillment. There's a river of the water of life, of the Spirit running through the center of the city. God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, are going to actually finally fulfill his initial intention for them. They're pictured here as trees who yield fruit and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, of the Gentiles, of those who are on the outside of God's people. There's this abundant salvation here. Actually, the abundant salvation that was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, when God said to him that all the nations, the Gentiles, were going to be blessed through him. And more even than that, God's name is written on his people. What does that mean? It means that the lavish goodness that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit is inscribed on the very being of you and me. The sun can finally take a break because the Lord God himself will give them light. And they live in the radiant presence of God. And it's God who sustains all life in this new creation. In the same way that even plants rely on the sun for photosynthesis. God is the source of all of that. And then, verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Flipping brilliant. And you know what? Remember that this description of fulfillment, it comes within the same collection of texts, the New Testament, as Paul's writing that tells us if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. As an old Christian aid slogan put it, we believe in life before death. We've said many times eternal life is not something which is just post-death. It's life with God that starts now, right? And yet, the picture changes even in verses 10 and 11 of our reading. These were not good enough to bear repetition. It says this, Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. I feel like there's a prize for the first people, for the first person who turns, let the vile person continue to be vile into their Bible Bible t shirt. Um, Since January, though, we've been looking at Revelation, and the overall title that we took for all of this was stolen from a book by Daryl Johnson. It It was Discipleship on the Edge. What is the edge? Let's finally explain that. I'm sure we said it earlier. But we're on the edge between the things that you can see and the things that you can't. We're on the edge between, in Revelation terms, Babylon and the kingdom of God. We're on the edge of what is now and what is not yet. We're on this edge 
where I'm coming soon, the time is near, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong? And I think this gives you a theological way of talking about the tension that I felt, and perhaps you may have felt this week. See, the brokenness that is sin mars everything, and it shows up so starkly when innocent lives are lost. It becomes clearly visible when bodies are broken with a van. And it's also there in the cracking and breaking that mental illness can wreak on a life. And it lurks in the racism that engulfed the conversation on Twitter that takes every excuse to tear at the relational bonds of human society. And more than that, It's there in the lie that you suddenly became so much more unsafe on Tuesday. That you should no longer walk the streets. That it could be any one of us, and so we should all treat everyone around us as a potential killer to mitigate the risks. Spend your life looking over your shoulder, because if you don't, you fill in the blank with the worst that you can imagine. I was speaking with a friend last night, who re-emphasized this to me by pointing out that the events of this week are just a living embodiment of the darkness facing each of us, facing our city, facing our world. In that sense, it's sin again. So what does the church say at a time like this? Is it enough just to wring your hands, to hope for the promise To phrase this question another way, how do you live as a Christian in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment? Well, verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20 tells us essentially to expect wrongness and vileness to continue, but it also tells you and me to continue to do right and to continue to be holy. So let me ask you another question. How do you expect it to feel to continue to be holy when wrongness and vileness will also continue? Let's pick up some of the imagery that we learned on the rest of the way through Revelation. How do you expect it to feel to follow the way of the Lamb when your friends and your neighbors are bowing down to the beast? How do you really expect that to feel? It should feel dissonant. You should feel uncomfortable. If something feels wrong, that means you're awake. The discomfort, the tension, the unease, the sense of edginess, that's a good thing. Because we are in contested territory. We live in this gap. We live in The now in a victory that Christ has already won, and we live in the not yet where we are awaiting his return. We live in the gap. Satan, the dragon, the beast, that Satan who runs as a strand through Revelation, is at work in our world. And that is what you see when you see brokenness, whether it is right in front of your face or easy to ignore, whatever its particular form. And do you know what? That is not something that you should ever acclimatize to. Why say that from a pulpit? Because it sounds obvious. Because it's easy. It's easy to acclimatize to it. 
Reinhold Niebuhr, an American theologian, one of the most prominent of the 20th century, in fact, was pointing to this sense of something being wrong when he said that the doctrine of sin is, quote, the only empirically verifiable truth of Christian faith. What does he mean? He's gesturing towards this communal sense of something being wrong and saying that, that puts a doctrine right into the heart of your experience. He's gesturing towards this feeling of the anxiety in the air, this heart-rendingness of the horror, the sense that somehow the terrible events of Tuesday bind us all together because none of us can escape its oily implications. The sense of, the sense of people drowning on a boat and the, the gut response to that that pulls at your heart and, the, and even the sense of, oh my goodness, why didn't this get as much coverage? And so on and so on. The sense that somehow this binds us all together because none of us can escape it. You can't get out of being part of the story in which this happens because it's the story of the world. The difference between you and I and everyone who's elsewhere on a Sunday morning is that we know its name and we know there's more. You know its name. It's sin. It's Satan. It's evil. It's... It's the crack in all creation. And you know that there's more. Because you know that there's God. And actually, that is why, that is why as we come to the end of this mammoth series, that's why we need revelation. That's why we need this weird book to refire our imaginations. Because it is so easy to succumb to the idea that there's nothing beyond what you can see, that it has always been this way, and it always will, and to trade in your indignation for apathy because it is easier. That is not what you are called to. That is not what the Church of Jesus Christ is called to in these days. What are we called to? Let me take you back to Revelation 8. It's going to be a little bit of the greatest hits. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And Joe's already told us what's happening here. The entire eternal worship of heaven ceases for an instant to allow the prayers of the saints to arise before God. And these prayers carry the very power of God into the earth. And you already know that it'll look like judgment because it always does when God comes. Because he will not allow sin to ravage his creation. And judgment always begins in the house of God, so you can expect to be called to repent. But when you're faced with the dissonance, the discomfort, the sense of awful realization that maybe faith was just a naive trust, and you were wrong, what do you do? You take the disruption and you use it to fuel this prayer. 
Remember how Revelation teaches us to overcome. You overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony, for you did not cling to life even in the face of death. You overcome by bringing the brokenness to Jesus in total trust and not succumbing to the lie that it's inevitable that things will fall apart and break down. Because actually, the claim in Revelation is that this is how you change the world. Because when you pray, God himself halts worship and pays attention and mixes your incense with his fire and throws it on the earth. You turn your eyes upon Jesus, not just so that the earth will grow dim for a moment and you can feel better, but so that everything around you becomes dim because it's illuminated by his glory and is transformed by his presence. That's, I feel like that sounded good, but honestly, this very rarely feels true to me. I don't know about you, but I talk, and I wonder if he listens, and I feel dissonance. I, I've, ah, since Easter, I have just wondered if it was all a bit naive. Could it, is it really real? It's been like having um, dark, it's been like having it's been like having unbroken clouds for for a couple of months, and that may color some of the things that I'm saying this morning. So you know, take a percentage out if you need to. But I feel the dissonance, and I feel the longing, and I feel the groaning, and I feel a desire for heaven because for me to live is Christ. But do you know what? Dying would be gain because I I could just take a break right now. But occasionally you get this glimpse that maybe there's power and maybe it might make a difference. I had a glimpse when I prayed for someone recently because someone else made me do it, literally. I say I prayed, and what I mean is actually I cried and pretended and hoped that they'd accept it was spiritual. I cried because I had this sensation of Jesus' compassion. It says in the Gospels many times that Jesus was deeply moved for someone that he goes on to heal or cast a demon out of or whatever and just had this sense of that and it ran so deep and it was so beautiful and it felt so heartbreaking for me but what was really shocking was I I don't know what I've said out loud in that moment I, I, may, I honestly mainly cried I, I think they were they were sat down as well so I think I just dripped on them for them but what really shocked me was what they said they'd felt they felt Jesus's compassion towards them and it unlocked something for them in that moment and it changed something. This is the definition of intercession. You know what an app is now. But my sense is that the call for the church right now is to do this. To stand in this uncomfortable, dissonant gap. And to intercede. To take hold of the compassion of Jesus for a hurting world. And to take the hurts of this world to Jesus. We are like becoming more organized and putting more programs in and stuff like we try. But we could do everything. We could turn all of the, the giving that we do, where we give sacrificially so that others can taste the life of your kingdom, outwards and put everything into solving hunger or solving homelessness or solving whatever piece it is. But the only thing that we actually have to offer is Jesus. The only thing. 
The only interesting thing about the church is God. We have to take hold of the compassion of Jesus for a hurting world, no matter how much that hurts us, and to take the hurts of the world to Jesus. Let it move us to prayer. Allow the dissonance, allow the gap to fuel your prayer. One of our greatest freedoms, Charlie Mackesy says, is that we get to choose how we react. He doesn't say it quite like that. It's probably pithier. You have a choice how you react to this. And Revelation gives us a story to live within. And honestly, I think the challenge for you and me today is to fight. See, Ephesians 6 says that our weapons are not the weapons of this world. That might not be Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 says this. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. What is the armor of God? The armor of God is this, uh, Isaiah 59. The Lord saw what was happening, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory, and his righteousness upheld him. He puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as a mantle. And then he gave them to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he gave them to you so that you could wear that armor And you could handle the hurts of a hurting world and take them to Jesus. That you could feel the compassion of Christ towards the brokenness in the world and wage war like the lamb by giving yourself away for the sake of others. There's darkness to push back. Like my friend last night said, all that happened this week, all that happened was that we saw a living embodiment of that darkness when we're used to addressing it in a super spiritualized abstract form. It's harder when there's blood on the ground and broken bodies in the street. But it's time for us to stop avoiding the military metaphors of Scripture and start waging war against the work of the enemy in our world, in our city. It's time, honestly, for the church to stop saying peace, peace, where there is no peace, in the words of Jeremiah 6. It's time for me to do this, let alone you. Um, I've been willing to not live up to this for the last two months at the very least (laughs) because I like the sound of cheap grace where God will be kind to me even though I can't hear him and so I don't really want to pray but that's not I don't think that's where we are anymore I think we're on a war footing and if you want to accuse me of overreacting you can come and do that later but I will show you the notes that I wrote on the 25th of May because I thought I was going to be preaching at the last minute which expressed this same thought around Mark chapter 4 it's a very good sermon maybe I'll preach it another time but for better or worse I am convinced that we are in a contested moment that the enemy is out to steal, kill and destroy with a particular tenacity or with a particular zeal almost. I'm convinced that we're in a battle and that we need to wake up to the fact, to that fact, which is why 
the discomfort is useful. It's why, it's, it's one of the reasons that I have some measure of hope that God can bring life out of this death. This is why it's worth you and I walking the streets, trusting as we hand those houses over and fill in the app to prove that we did it, that Jesus, as we hand them over to Jesus, we can trust that it has an impact. Because why Revelation? Revelation actually doesn't end with an image of fulfillment. It's not quite happily ever after. Its final movement is longing. There's longing for the unity of Christ and creation, for the unity of God and his people, for the unity of all things in the rejoicing of a renewed completeness. Listen to verse 17 again. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. There is a longing here for Jesus to come. He's invited first. And then there's a longing for all who are thirsty to come. The Gentiles, the outsiders, the broken are blessed and offered the free gift of the water of life. And in the second to last verse, the penultimate verse, Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, yes, I am coming soon. And we respond, oh, God, please. Oh, God, please. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Because it's broken, God. Amen. Come soon. Come soon. Come sooner. Speed your coming. What should we do when we're faced with the dissonance of the gap between God's promise and the brokenness of our reality? Oh, it's simple. Pray, come, Lord Jesus. Pray, come, Holy Spirit, for a while if you get bored. And pray it like the whole of heaven will stop. Like God will mix that desperate plea with the fire of his presence and cast it on the earth like you might actually overcome something evil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. And ultimately, like evil actually has no place in God's good creation. And it is an alien invasion that needs to be repelled because that is what it is. And you pray this over other people. Ask Jesus what his plan is. Recognize where and how he's inviting you to participate. And then declare. Declare what he has said with his authority. I think there is a new way of praying here for some people. I increasingly think this is maybe how we could pray for healing. Ask Jesus what he's doing in and for this person. And then tell it to happen. If it's healing... Let's speak healing. If it's comfort and co-suffering, then speak God's presence. But he's a big God. He can speak for himself. He can act. And he can change. He can transform. Pray over others in that way. Walk the streets asking Jesus what he is doing and then telling it to happen. Like evil has no place. And you pray over yourself. I think maybe the challenge here going back to my childhood again um, I was um, baptized as an uh, as a like 
sort of an adult. I was 13. Um, I wasn't baptized as an infant. That was the important piece. Oh, digression. Get back to it. When I was 13, um, I was baptized. The reason that I was baptized is I was increasingly aware of the gap, another gap, between the person that I was when I was at church and the person that I was when I was at school. And I wanted to do something significant to close that gap, so I got baptized. And I realized that I was still me on the other side of that, even though God was very gracious. But I think there's a challenge here for us to pray the way that we pray in church to believe the way that you believe when Neil is playing and Chris is playing and when, and when there is a swell, there's nothing different here than outside that door in, in the particular sense that God is with you always to the very end of the age. So how do you pray this? You pray this over others by asking Jesus what his plan is, recognizing where he's inviting you to participate and declaring it. And you pray it over yourself by opening up every part of your life to him, including the parts where you have previously wanted him to have his hands off so you can fit in, including the parts where, especially the parts that you least want to. And you feel the fear of that because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you do it anyway. That is, this is a call for the perseverance and faith of the saints, is how Revelation would put that. This gap, it can sap your hope or fuel your fire. And one of our greatest freedoms is how we react to things. 